Scripture tells us when people in our midst, our brother and sister, when they hurt, we should hurt as well. Um, and when we rejoice, we also rejoice. Uh, so yeah, just keep, keep in your prayers, the people that, um, you know, Tony and the other sister as well. If you have Bibles, please open in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We've been going through verse by verse through the book of Mark for almost a year now. Uh, I know we took a time off in the summer, uh, but it's always good for me personally uh, these last several months uh, hearing the different guys preach through the book of Mark as well as studying and preaching it myself. Um, people say that our, the, if you usually when you ask pastors, what's your favorite book in the Bible, they'll usually say it's the book that they're studying. And really Mark has been that for me the last several months. It was a sweet time studying and reading and learning about our Savior. Mark chapter 8, we're going to go from for this evening, chapter 8, verse 1 to 21. is a longer portion, uh, but I believe that it will be helpful for us to kind of get a, a larger picture of what's going on. I do think that this longer narrative allows us to kind of see the flow, uh, the logic of why Mark wrote the way that he did, as well as just allows us to see more of our Savior. So I'm going to read all 21 verses, and we're going to pray, and we're going to get into the preaching of God's Word. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them, and they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there. He sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to a district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take the bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart, having eyes do you not see, and having ears, do you not hear, and do you not remember? 
when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said twelve. When I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Father God, Lord, thank you for your word. It's just a constant reminder of how great of a provider you are to us and how great of a God you are. Lord, as we look through your text, conform us to have a greater depth of worship to you. Cause us to trust you more and to love you more as we look and behold this narrative in the New Testament. Give us attentive ears and a teachable heart this evening. In your son's precious name, amen. In life, we all need reminders. I'm sure most of you have in your phone some sort of app that will remind you of something. Usually a certain day will come up and there will be a notification saying today is so-and-so's birthday, today is your anniversary, today is some sort of special occasion. The reason why we need these things is because we are all people that are prone to forget. Even for some of us here that are married, you wear a wedding band because it's supposed to remind you that you are married and that the covenant that you've made before the Lord and to the people in your wedding that you have made a vow to stay married to this person. There's a reason why we have different holidays as well, is to celebrate a particular thing that happened in the past. Reminders are always needed because we are a forgetful people. And there's something in us as creatures that are broken by the fall that constantly needs reminder, reminders because we are people that always forget. I think when, you, when I read through the scriptures, it might seem like a deja vu to you because haven't we gone through this before? Didn't the disciples at one point not that long ago have a similar narrative where they asked Jesus to, how are they going to provide for all the multitudes of people? And the answer is yes. And you have to understand, when you think about the Gospels, it's only written with, with a limited amount of information. All that we have in the Gospels is enough for the life of godliness and know Jesus Christ and all of that, and that's true. But you have to understand that the, every author had to choose what is important. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they write down everything that we need to know, and oftentimes it's designed for us to remind us of who Jesus is. And again, Mark wrote this with an intent. He's writing this story almost like remembering back as he's penning this letter or this gospel, he remembered that, yes, at one point Jesus fed the 5,000, and then this is in chapter 6 of Mark, and then two chapters later in chapter 8, Jesus fed 4,000 people. And why does he continue this? And I think it's, it's really Peter, which is the one that's, uh, Mark was the one who kind of uh, was with Peter when he wrote the gospel. I think it's Peter's humble acknowledgement that there were times in his time when he was following Jesus that he needed those reminders. Because really, I think Peter understands that people will forget. People will forget the goodness of our God. And he puts this narrative here to just show you how frail we are and how we need to constantly go back and remember the things of the Lord. I do believe that is why we have the scriptures. The scriptures were given to us because it's supposed to keep reminding us of our God. So as we go through this text, we're going to go through three different scenes. And as we go through it, 
I hope they could remind you of, a, of the God that we worship. They remind you of who we worship. He's not just someone that is just passive and just uh, created the world and left uh, existence to itself, but he's actively engaging in our daily lives. And I hope that as you see our Savior, as you continue to behold his greatness, that you will be assured in this life to not be afraid or nervous about the things of the world, but to continue entrusting yourself to him. So this first scene we see in chapter 8, verse 1 to 10 is, is Jesus' provision. Jesus' provision. In those days, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, when there was again a large crowd and had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciple to uh, disciples and said to them, I feel compassion to the, for the crowd. They have remained with me three days and have nothing to eat. You can see that in verse 1 here, it's this repeated uh, thing. He said that, that they were there again. There was a large crowd in chapter 4. Sorry, in chapter 6, there was about 5,000, and I think 5,000 is only counting the men, so if you count all the children, it's probably around 15,000 people. And here, uh, the 4,000 Gentiles, it could be the same uh, idea where they're only counting the men and not counting the women and the children, so it could be more than uh, 4,000. There's definitely a whole multitude of people, again, have crowded around Jesus. And I think this is designed to further the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is. He's doing the same thing again. And I think when we look through all the Gospels, it's easy to assume things like the Sermon on the Mount is something that Jesus said once. But we have to understand that Jesus actually said these parables and lessons over and over again. And there are times where he does a repeated miracle so that they have a deeper understanding and further uh, expand the disciples' mind on who Jesus is. And we are all like this. Every time when we study God's Word, sometimes you'll study uh, in your life of a Christian, you'll study God's Word, you'll go back to a book, and then years from now, you'll read that book again, and you'll study it, and you'll find out there are new things about the Lord that you did not know the first time around, or that you'll rediscover something that you did remember at one point but have forgotten because of time. And we are all like this because we have to understand that the mature believer never grows out of trying to learn about Christ. There's no such thing as someone that only learns about Jesus once and never again. The life of the Christian is that we constantly learn about Jesus over and over again. Uh, Pastor Henry said this line in the first service on Sunday, is that the reason why we meet weekly is because we are weak. I told him that's a very poetic line, and he said that I did not even write that in my notes. So by God's providence, he, he just reminded me that, yeah, that is one reason why we meet. It's because we are very weak people, the readers, like us, are probably wondering, why is this story happening again? Why is this miracle? Why is this a repeated miracle? And the reality is, to, again, learn and to remember how great our Savior is. He's not just like a magician that only does a trick once. He does miracles and sometimes repeated miracles to show people that he is the Lord, that he is God. And, he, and it says that in verse 1, he called his disciples and said to them, and he wants his disciples to be just as compassionate as he is. Again, when you think, uh, when you look at our Savior, you see that he actually cares about those that are in need. He's emotionally moved by them. And if we call ourselves Christians, naturally we should have the same level of compassion towards others as well. You see in verse 2, said, I feel compassion for the crowd because they have remained with me three days and have nothing to eat. 
this phrase, I feel compassion, is a, is a very strong word. It's, it's like when you go on a roller coaster and then the roller coaster drops, that sinking feeling in your stomach, that's the word here. That is like your, your heart drops. That's this idea. Jesus sees this multitude. He sees that they're all hungry and they've been with him for three days. And he just has this broken heartedness for them. He calls them, he, he calls the disciples to him and he has this sinking feeling in his chest. He cares about it. He's just compassionate towards them. He said that they remain with me now for three days and have nothing to eat, which implies that these people spent these three days learning and learning and learning. That they, It's almost like they were fasting uh, because they wanted to learn more about Jesus, that they followed him because they wanted to know more. The Gentiles wanted to follow and learn from Jesus. And remember, this is where they're at. Uh, Jesus is in, is in currently this Gentile territory, and these Gentiles have this hunger for God's word, whereas the religious Jews uh, back in the Galilee had no desire for him. Yet these Jew- Gentiles, they were willing to be exhausted to learn more about Jesus Christ. Verse 3, and if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come a great distance. He has this care for their physical need. This is, again, uh, the doctrine of common grace, that God uh, re- uh, gives rain for those that are sinners and those that are righteous as well. He has compassion for those because every single one of us are made in the image of God. And it is by God's common grace that he gives us all sustenance to live in the fallen world. We don't deserve it, but yet God in his, co- in his common grace will give us things, especially even for non-believers, that in his mercy and kindness he'll provide for them as well. And instead of some people come from a great distance, like they travel far with him to hear and to learn from Jesus Christ. Verse 4, and his disciples answered them, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Now the disciples clearly needed a reminder of what Jesus has done in the past. I mean, he's done this before. They're questioning the power of Jesus. They're, they're saying, we're in this... Again, it's different between chapter 6, because in chapter 6, they were in like a green pasture area, so they lied down on green grass, and they were relatively close to some city where they can get some food. But this situation, there's a desert. It's really desolate. There's nothing there. There's no place that they could run to quickly to satisfy the people. You can see just their lack of faith, and they're challenging Jesus. Now, aren't we like this at times? When, when the Lord places us in a trial, one of the common things that will come to our mind is, God, do you care about me? Lord, don't you know I'm going through all of this affliction? How can you say that you love me in light of all of this? Amen. <laughs> they question the power of Jesus, and just like how we can. And the reason why they question is the same reason why we would question Christ. Or God is because we have forgotten God's blessing for us in the past, so we struggle in the present. And they don't know. They, so then this is what Jesus asked him. And notice how he responds. He doesn't, he doesn't get angry at them. He just asks him, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. Now, there are different commentaries that, that would make a big deal out of this number seven. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think it's just, he, he's just saying seven so that eventually there will be seven, you know, like, 
uh, baskets of, um, of food and just to show that God is giving them and blessing them abundantly and providing for them. And when you think of loaves of bread here, don't think in terms of like the ones we get in Costco, like the, like, you know, the, well, the perfectly um, shaped little bread and that you can cut up and make a whole bunch of sandwiches. It's, it's seven little, like six-inch little pita breads. They have only seven of those. It's what we would eat in like, you know, as an appetizer. They have seven of these little loaves here. And then t- and verse 6, and he directed to the crowd to sit down on the ground, which is, I think it's just amazing to think, just to visualize. You know, they're in a desolate place. He tells everyone to sit down, and they do. And then taking the seven loaves, he gives thanks and broke them, and he kept giving them to his disciples to serve to them, and they served them to the crowd. So I don't exactly know how he did this. I don't know if he had the one that he just tore uh, the pita bread and then gave it to them, or he took all seven, broke it, and then gave, and gave it to the people. But in the Greek, uh, the original language, I think NASB and the, and the LSB, they translate pretty well in that it's this constant motion. So you could just imagine just sitting around Jesus. He's just breaking this bread, giving it, breaking it, and giving it, and it just doesn't stop. And he just keeps going until everyone is satisfied. And there's even a little bonus here because there was fish. Verse 5, he was asking, oh, sorry, um, yeah, and uh, verse 7, and they also had a few fish, and, he, and after he blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. Now, these fish are interesting because they are basically created. Uh, they had they multiplied, like it was like seven, but they were like multiplied, but those fish that were multiplied, they, they have never lived. It was this, they were created dead, but yet it was not spoiled. It was this miraculous fish. I think it probably tasted different, but it was, it was enough to satisfy them. So that they, they just kept giving in and giving in. If you just imagine handling fish, you know, and bread, it's probably going to be, you know, smelly, but yet everyone was satisfied. Everyone was thankful that God, uh, that, that, that Jesus was willing to provide for them. Again, this is a multitude of people, 4,000 people. They're seeing this. They're in a desolate place. They know that they're not carrying, like, a whole bunch of baskets, so when you know, the skeptics would say, like, oh, maybe they're far away. No, they were, there was nowhere that they go. They, like, there was no illusions. It's not like the magic trick where there's like a wall somewhere hidden or some trap door where they could grab things. Jesus just kept breaking out the bread and breaking the fish and passing it along to people. And everyone was satisfied. Everyone was fed. Verse 8, and they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. Again, this is more... This is the reason why I think the seven is here is to show you that they start with seven little uh, pita bread and ended with seven basketful. There's a lot more. It exceeded their expectation. And Jesus is generous to, all, to these pagan people. And yet he shows this love for them. Even though they probably, I would imagine, even though Jesus is showing this miracle, that a lot of them did not come to saving faith. Again, you can see the common grace that the Lord has for these people. Again, I think this is a lesson for us. How do we think about those who are different from us? I'm not saying that we compromise doctrinally. I'm just saying that when you look at someone that is lost in a different religion or different worldview, what goes on in your heart? Do you have a brokenness for them because they're lost in their sin, or do you think that you're better than them because you know the truth and they don't? Because it's very easy for us to only care about those that are believers and those that are in our you know, common circles. But to love those that are antagonistic toward you, who only want to exploit you, to love these individuals is what Christ has done. 
And this is what he tells them to love our enemies, to bless them. Because it's really easy to love those that is easy to love, but to love those that are difficult to love, it's, it's, a, it's a sign that God has worked in your heart to be compassionate to those around you. And this is what Jesus is like. And again, he's hanging out with Gentiles. Remember early on in this book, we talked about how the Jews were talking about, well, why didn't you wash your hands? None of these Jew- Gentiles washed their hands. None of these people uh, understood the Jew- Jewish laws. Yet Jesus was among these people giving out bread. And I'm sure they all, the disciples were, I'm imagining them being nervous, just being close around to all these Gentiles. But yet our Savior led this example of this compassion toward those that want to be with him. Verse 9, and, and now about 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And that's around, again, probably more than 4,000. They're just counting the men here. It's smaller than the first uh, crowd in chapter 6, but it still demonstrates his power. And his power is not just because, you know, it's not like diminished or smaller, it's just because the crowd is smaller. Rather, it's just, again, he, he created everything out of nothing. He sent them away. So they're able to leave. And they were able to go home, and they, were never, you know, they won't faint along the way. And I think when you look at this situation, this, how God provided for all things, there's a question you need to ask yourself. Like, do you believe that this actually happened? Do you believe that this event is a historical account of what happened in reality? Because when you see how liberals look at this commentary or look at this passage or any passage about the supernatural acts of God, they think that this is some sort of allegory for something or, or this couldn't have happened. But the reason why Peter wrote this is because the original audience needed to know that this is an account of our Savior and that he is worthy of your worship and devotion, that this is exactly what happened. He was an eyewitness, Peter was an eyewitness account to this, and he wants people to know that your life, that you're going to give up your life to this guy, this, this man, this guy that's truly man and truly God, he's truly, he is those things. He is divine and he is human. He came into the world to die for sinners. That we're not worshiping just a, a, some sort of good teacher, but we're worshiping God here. And he wants them to know that God will provide for them just like how God provided for Peter and the, the multitudes and the disciples uh, in the past. And it's a lesson for us that if we know that this is true then, it's going to be true for us now. If God cares for these people, these Gentiles and the disciples and all those people around us, then he'll care for us today Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And if you believe that to be true, then you must have assurance and hope no matter how difficult things get, whether it's the economy, whether it's your family, whatever it may be that you're struggling with, understand and know that God knows what you're struggling with and he cares for you. Verse 10, and immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and they came to the district of Thalmanthua. And um, this... uh, Really, we're going to see that you know, when you look at the book of Matthew, they, they, they have a different area for this. You know, the, the parallel accounts speaks of a different place. And sometimes people think, well, is this like a, is it a contradiction in Scripture? I, I don't think so. I think both of these places, and you see Matthew and here, it's basically saying like the Bay Area versus saying San Francisco. Like we understand what's going on here. It's the same area. It's maybe just named differently, so there's no contradiction here. It's talking about the general location here. But from verse 1 to 10, we see Jesus' provision, and from verse 11, 13, we see Jesus' opposition. Verse 11, and the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from 
him a sign from heaven, testing him. Now again, so Jesus goes back to Jewish territory. He, he goes up and these Pharisees see him. And some commentators think that this passage here in verse 11 is about nine months after verse 10, that there's some sort of time gap in, uh, in between that time. But when Jesus arrived again, uh, they came out. And this word came out, it's not just like they appeared out of nowhere. They have this, yes, they appeared, they're waiting for him, but this is like a military word. Like they were thinking, okay, we'll go to war with Jesus. And then so they began to argue with him. They attempted to gain back control because they know that Jesus was influencing not just the Jewish people, but now also the Gentile people. And they wanted to to, uh, diminish his influence and power. So they wanted to argue. They said they they were asking him to show him another sign from heaven. Uh, And... Like a, some, and you hear sign from heaven. It's, it's supposed to be this imagery almost like Elijah when he was going against a Baal worshiper. He wants to see Jesus like manipulate and have fire come out of the sky. And what is interesting, though, is that when you think back in this book, I think Peter wrote this because he wanted you as a reader to remember that there, there was a sign from heaven, that Jesus did get a sign. Uh, well, there was a sign from heaven, and that was the time of his baptism. You remember when we went in the beginning of the book of Mark, we talked about how when Jesus baptized, the sky ripped open, and, and, the, and the Lord spoke. And everyone around them saw this. And I think some of the Pharisees were there as well. That's why when, when, when the Pharisees were there, they, uh, John the Baptist rebuked them. Because they were in that crowd, and they saw Jesus coming. They saw the sky open up, and now they're asking for another sign. And they were trying to test him. They're trying to put him on trial here. They don't believe that Jesus is who he claims he is, and they're trying to test him, even though throughout the life of Christ, he's shown them a whole bunch of miracles. They're trying to embarrass and humiliate Jesus. They're testing him to see if he really is God. Now I wonder if you are like this. In your moment of struggle, in your moment when you're doubting, do you find yourself trying to test God? Lord, if you are truly real, you need to do this for me. Or Lord, if, if you really love me, you need to do something else for me. You need to give me the, what I want. You have to understand that these type of prayers, it's not to say that you can't let your needs be known to the Lord, but understand that there's difference between asking humbly and demanding and for sake of just really testing his goodness. We know that sometimes the Lord will give us things that we don't like, but even though it's not something that we like, it's something that we need. Whether there's trials in your life, sometimes the Lord will leave you in the trial so, because what's best for you is that you be more sanctified through your trials. And as hard as it may be, we have to be like Jesus, which said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. These Pharisees were testing Jesus, hoping to embarrass him. And in verse 12, and sighing deeply in his spirit. This, it's kind of, it's, I, I, I put it in my notes, like, it's like a divine eye roll. You know, he, he, he just can't believe that these Pharisees are doing this. In some ways, he's, he feels this sadness for them as well. Even though these Pharisees have the Torah and the Old Testament, they, were, they have all of those theology, but yet they fail to worship the right God. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. I think he, I mean, if you, you know that this is chapter 8, so there's you know, eight more chapters here, and Jesus does a few more miracles here. So what is he, is he saying here? 
I think he's just speaking of this, meaning the Jewish leaders. Like he's speaking to that generation that he, before them, he's not going to show any more signs anymore. But he is always going to do different signs and other people are going to believe. But these religious leaders, he's going to deliberately choose to not show them any more signs. And in a lot of ways, this is even his mercy. Because we know that the more knowledge you know about the Lord, the more accountable you are to the Lord. And these Pharisees, they've seen and they've, they've heard so much about Jesus Christ, yet in God's mercy, he's going to show them less of those signs. So that when, or I know these Pharisees, a lot of them probably did not repent, that there is, in a lot of ways, some mercy that's given to them because they would be judged stricter because they have more knowledge. And this is a lot of ways him also turning and leaving them because verse 13 said, leaving them, he embarked and went away to the other side. Now, verse 13 is the midpoint of the gospel of Mark and he, he is essentially done with the religious system. These Jews, these Jewish leaders were unrepentant and now it will be in a lot of ways permanent and this is, a divine judgment in a lot of ways. When God turns away from you, when, and there's a lot of things that you can understand when God lets you do whatever you want, that's a sign of judgment. It's never a good thing when your conscience is seared. It's never a good thing when you don't feel convicted over your sin. It may feel good in the moment, but it's not a good thing for you because you understand that that's God giving you over to your sin. It's God saying he has enough of you and he's leaving you to your sin but even though he's leaving you to your sin now, you're just building up a case against yourself when you, when you meet the Lord face to face. And this is what Jesus is doing. He turns away from them, leaving them, and he leaves them because of their hard-heartedness. Now, I hope that for some of us, I know that all of us as believers struggle with sin. And what I hope for all of us is that we never get used to sin in our life. That if there is some sort of sin in your life, that you confess it quickly and that you kill the sin right away. Because sin, and it's just the life of the Christian, it, it never, it's always, we're always going to have this internal battle, but never give up. That understand that it's worth fighting against sin, putting away those sins, cutting those things out of your life, because you know that these things are going to be a hindrance to your worship to the Lord. Because it's better that you wrestle through just losing those things in your life than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Verse 13, so he again embarked and went away to the other side. And it seems interesting that both in, from the first, you know, the Gentile crowd, he had to get on a boat to leave them, and then now again he's here leaving them. And they get on this boat, which just goes to our, our third scene here, and that is uh, Jesus' lesson. So the first scene we see is Jesus' provision, and then the second scene we see Jesus' opposition, and now this is Jesus' lesson. Verse Fourteen, And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Now, this is providence here that they have forgotten to take, in, take some bread. Um, and I think this is intentional because of the lesson that's going to come. Is that uh, they, they, they have only one loaf left. Verse 15, he was giving orders to them saying, Watch out, beware of the lessons, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And those words, watch out, is he's trying to teach them this lesson. He's, and watch out is like constant, like never be off guard. Always be on guard against these, the leaven of the Pharisee and the leaven of Herod. Uh, and, and why he uses these two is that Pharisees are the people who add to scriptures. 
And Herod, as we saw earlier in this book, is a Jewish person that chose to deny all of Scripture. So if you see their worldview, it's like a legalistic worldview and people that are antinomianism, people that try to add to God's word and people who just doesn't care about God's word altogether. And he tells them that beware of both of these type of teaching. Uh, don't uh, beware of the Pharisees and, the, and, the, and Herod. And it's leaven, and that's this idea. Usually the word leaven in the New Testament is used in a negative sense. It's something that like pollutes something and destroys and it spreads quickly. And both, both of them, whether it's the Pharisees or the Herodians, their worldview are things that ultimately is, a, is, a, is unbelief in God and a trust in themselves. And all of us understand that you won't be saved through either of them. You can't be saved if you're a legalist, and you can't be saved if you're antinomian. And yet, in our Christian life, we sway from one to the other. Sometimes we are prone to legalism, as I said a few, few weeks ago when I preached on that, in the other end as well. And we need to be mindful that it's not those things. It's not abandoning God's word or adding to God's word. Rather, it is God's grace that saves us. And as he's using this bread illustration to try to teach them, like, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and, uh, and the leaven of the Herod, uh, verse 16 the disciples, is that they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. So you could see their priority here. And, and it gives me assurance as a pastor that, hey, if, you know, if Jesus is trying to teach them and they're thinking about food, then, I don't, then what hope is there for me? You know, on Sunday when I'm preaching, I could see some of your eyes are looking down at the watch and I even see some of you guys look on Yelp of where to go after church. I don't feel so bad anymore because if the disciples were to do Jesus, then, yeah, you guys can do it to me. Don't do it, but, you know. I hope you don't, but, you know, and I, I, at least I as a pastor feel, you know, it's, it's all right, it's okay. You know, if they do it to Jesus, they'll do it to me. So, so yeah, they, but it does show this lack of priority here. Because even in verse 14, they forgot to take in bread, and in verse 16, they were discussing about bread, and they were focusing on the wrong thing. Jesus was trying to use this object lesson, and they're thinking about food. And there's a real struggle for them because they really lack focus on what Jesus is trying to say. Verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? And he, you know, it says like, I would imagine him being on this boat. You know, there's 12 of them, including himself, and He's trying to teach them this lesson. He hears them grumbling, and they're like, oh, yeah, what happened to the bread? Hey, who's in charge of the bread? Wait, what happened to the, all those baskets? Why do we have one loaf? And they're like grumbling and complaining. And Jesus like, why? And understand, they're in the water here, so you know, they could even fish for fish if they wanted to. They're, they're not in this desolate place, mainly because Jesus is there. But yet, they forget. And Jesus asked them, do you not remember? They presume and doubt God in the moment because they forgot what God has done for them in the past. Understand that whether it's worry or sin, both of these results are because we forgot what Christ has done in the past. The reason why we worry in the moment is because we forget what Christ has done in the past. The reason why we sin in the moment is because we forget God's, moment, God's goodness, so we fall into sin. In, both, uh, in, 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 in a lot of ways, in every area of our sin, we sin because we forget what Christ has done. Now, again, understand, this is from the, from the time where he did those multi, with feeding the multitudes. So now, yeah, it, was, it might have been nine months from now, but that's such a clear lesson that they should have remembered. In fact, they actually do remember parts of the miracle, because in verse 19, 20, Jesus asked him, 
when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces you picked up? And they said to him, 12. In verse 20, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said, seven. Which they remembered how much they ended with, but they forgot how they got there. They, don't rem- they, like, they remember how much they ended with. They forgot, like, yeah, how did we get so much, how much, so many, so much bread? It's because God made it for them. But yet somehow they forget that like, Jesus is right there. They don't need to worry about food. Essentially, verse 19 and 20, it's Jesus is, this is like Jesus' resume on just food. There's other things that Jesus has done, like walking on water and all the other miracles. They seem to have forgotten all of those things. So Jesus only focused, okay, you, you, wanna, you don't remember the fact that I did all of these miracles. He's showing them by, by reminding them what he's done in the past. Again, this was after these miracles, and yet they seem to have forgotten Jesus has done way more than, is, than what's listed, obviously, and they think about how, and, and they think about just how God has not, they, they, they seem to struggle with the fact that God uh, provided for them, or he's able to provide for others. And it's actually kind of funny, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 12, the, the parallel account, he, they, you know, Jesus is kind of confronting them here, is that the disciples, had to, they basically did like a group huddle, and they concluded, I don't think Jesus is talking about actual bread. It's like, good job. It's a good, it's a good, uh, good start here. Or it's a good way to get back on track. And then Jesus ends with this, and he was saying to him, do you not yet understand? Their focus was on the wrong thing. They supposed that Jesus was talking about actual bread, but instead, they were actually talking about something deeper and more profound. Now, I'm going to do something different this evening in that I'm actually going to give you the application questions in the sermon. I'm going to answer them myself, and then eventually you guys will get to answer with one another. So the first question I have is this. Am I developing eyes to see and ears to hear? And then it's, that's the first question. And I, the reason why I ask this is because I was thinking about these things. You know, am I developing eyes to see and ears to hear. In order to cultivate faith in our life, it's not to look for evidence that's outside of Scripture, but it's really to trust in what is revealed to us. Scripture is greater than the evidence that we see in the world. In fact, Scripture is even greater than some of the miracles that we see in Scripture. Unbelief is always against God, and the opposite of unbelief is not more evidence. The opposite of unbelief is saving faith. It's to continue to trust in Him. The issue when we are struggling with our faith, it's never the lack of evidence. The world does have evidence that supports Scripture. There are things that we can discover, whether it's science or even archaeological things, that can prove that the Scripture is true. And those things are great, and those things are true, but those things are not the things that saves you. Because you can be a creationist and yet still not trust in the work of Jesus Christ. Doubt is never cured By evidence, doubt is only cured by faith in Christ. No amount of evidence can change you if your heart is against the Lord. Again, this is, and I know all of us at some point in our Christian life will struggle, is this even true? And again, how you find out uh, if if something is true, how do you know that God's word is true, is not to look for other things, but to look to God's word and trust in it. Because the Bible does not assume, it presumes that you're now held accountable to what you read. 
It begins that way. It begins with you. It, it doesn't try to defend the fact that God created the heavens and earth. It states everything as fact. And you have to believe everything in God's word because God's word is, is God's word. It reveals who he is. If you want to know God, the best place to go is his own word. No evidence can change you if your heart is against the Lord. Again, saving faith is a proof of the, is, is a proof of the miracle. Regeneration, the fact that we, the hearts are changed, are radically changed, that is in itself a miracle. And that's only because we understand what God's word has to say. You know, when we think about the evidence, sometimes people think the reason why I trust God is because of all these extra evidence. That's not, again, that's not true trust and true faith. Imagine if I said, I know my wife is faithful to me because the private investigator gave me all the evidence and proved to me that, yeah, she is totally faithful to me. That's not faith in my wife's faithfulness to me. That's me trusting the evidence, trusting something outside, and so, as opposed to looking at my wife and trusting her. And it's the same way with our relationship with the Lord. When you say that I believe God because all of these evidence and not God's word, you're saying that you, you don't actually trust God in himself. Rather, you trust all of the things that are, that, that's before you. And faith is something that, it, uh, it's, not, it's, not like, it's not like something that is irrational because the world is built on that. Every single one, even the most atheist person lives by faith. But the fact that we have God's word and everything that in God's word proves, it's, it's the self-testimony of God's faithfulness, and we should trust it. We need to trust it because it's the only thing that we have that reveals to us who God is. In fact, in 2 Peter, and again, if you think about Mark and Peter, same author here, this is what he writes, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's, interpret one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Again, both in terms of Mark and the whole Scripture and Peter, everything, it's God's word reveals who God is, and we trust in God's word, and, there, and God's word is, is greater than even some of the miracles we have because the fact that we have God's word in itself shows you that God sustains us through his word. The solution is to continue to trust in the Lord. Unbelief is opposed to God, and it seeks to justify your own sin. Again, it's easy to think that we can trust things outside of, of Scripture. Again, those things are not bad in and of itself. But when you're struggling with doubt, look to Christ and not the things out around Scripture. So that first question is, am I developing eyes to see and ears to hear? Second question is this. Can I discern my God's goodness by providing in the past and the present? Can I discern my God's goodness by providing in the past and in the present? Again, throughout this whole story here, this entire narrative, Jesus is telling them, do you remember? And understand that the Bible is a testimony of God's work throughout redemptive history. And we need to look to it because it's supposed to remind us what God has done. If Jesus can provide for the temporal things in the past and even the eternal things in the future, then why do we struggle in the present? Why do we struggle in the present? You know, the, the Old Testament, and 1 Corinthians tells us that, or 2 Corinthians tells us that the Old Testament is helpful for us to remind us, to even warn us of the unbelief that the Israelites have. So when you look back at the Old Testament, the reason why the, if you look at, read the book of Joshua, how they had, 
they set up these stones. It's supposed to remind them of the fact that God has brought them into this promised land. Uh, the reason why they had the Passover is to remember that they were delivered from Egypt. The reason why we have communion is because it's supposed to remind us of what Christ has done in the past and what we have in the future. All of these reminders are all a means of grace by the Lord for us to remember him. And scripture calls us to remember him. And that's a very common word in scripture. It's a remember, I remember you. And, and those who struggle with the faith are oftentimes those who are forgetful. They challenge God. They, they think that God is not good because they have forgotten how God has been good to them in the past. We have scripture to remind us of who he is, but we also just, in our own life, in our daily life, when the Lord has answered a prayer or delivered us from a trial or difficult time, we, could, we need to remember those things and see how the Lord has sustained us through it. Whether it's your ministry or your marital life or your money or whatever material things you need, whatever that matters to you, understand that God has answered those prayers at one point in your life and will provide for everything that you need. And, how, and you need to, in your mind, just continue to, yes, treasure God's word, but treasure how God and remember how God has done been so good to you in this life. I mean, the chief one, of course, is the fact that you are saved, the fact that you know him, the fact that you're reconciled to him. That is the greatest good that could be, ever be done to you. If he just did that and, and everything else in your life goes horribly wrong, that's more than, than what you and I deserve. God provided for what you need, and what you need to do is to remember that God cares and he loves you. What needs in your own life that you can remember in the past that can make you trust him in the present and into the future. God has answered every prayer. He answered in a way that it's this exactly the situation, whatever means it may be, it's the, that's what you need in the moment. You need to think about those things and treasure in your heart if you want to continue to worship our Lord. So then this is why scripture is here for us. This is why we have God's word. This is why we're going through the gospels because it's to remind us of who our Savior is. In a time and an age where there was so much distractions and just turmoil in the world, it's easy, to be dis- it's easy to be discouraged and distraught, but I want to encourage all of us to remember and remind ourselves of how great our God is, that he is in absolute control, he cares for you, and he will see you through whatever trial that you're going through in this life. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you again for your word. And this lesson from the loaves. Lord, may we be humble and remember the things that you've taught us in the past. Lord, store up your word in our hearts so that we will not sin against you, so that we will not doubt, so that we'll always trust you, so that we'll always grow in our faith. Lord, help us in our walk. We are frail. We are weak in so many different ways. We're in a lot of ways no different from the disciples of old. But help us in our unbelief. Help us in our lack of faith. Not by providing necessarily the things external, but work in our hearts so that we have the eyes to see your word and to hear your word and change us and conform us to have a greater devotion to you each and every single day. Lord, thank you for your word, for all the truth in it and all the reminders in scripture so that we can continue to have our hope in you and to continue to walk faithfully and to live with joy. In your son's name we pray, amen.